You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil. The first place they sent me was to, to Africa. I hadn't been back, as I said, for 20 years. And I thought, why had I done this? I have traveled in that intervening 20 years. I had been everywhere. I'd been all over South America, all over Africa, or sorry, all over China, the Middle East, to Greenland, to the States. But I had never been back to Africa. And the minute I landed, I fell head over heels in love with the place. And I decided, I made a commitment. This is the only place I want to return to. Once, you, once Africa gets into your skin, it, nowhere else can compete. Hello, I'm delighted to say I have the renowned Irish adventurer, writer and documentary maker Moncon McGann on the podcast today. As you'll hear, Moncon has to be the most well-travelled guest on this podcast that I've had so far. If every episode is a personality, then this one is pure joy and love for the remotest parts and peoples on a planet that needs sustainable help. Moncon shares great tales from his wide and varied travels. I call this nostalgia travel where we can go anywhere in our head to the places in the world our body can currently go now. After over 20 years of unrivaled adventures to parts of the world unseen by most Irish people, I start the interview by asking Moncone about his decision in January last year to give up flying for holidays for ecological reasons. I was reading earlier on an article and I remember reading it last year. It was in January when you said that you weren't going to fly. And I remember reading it. You were like Mystic Meg. Because I remember at the time going, gosh, that's really um, hardcore. How could you do that? Little did I know that... I wouldn't be flying anywhere either myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it was not an easy decision to make. And I definitely couldn't have imagined myself making it before 2019. But, you know, 2019, we forget, but it was a momentous year. You know, our full focus has been on 2020. But 2019 was the year, it was the year that like Greta Thunberg came to, to prominence. And it was the year that people suddenly realized just how real and um, dangerous this the, the climate change crisis was. And it was obviously also the year of the, the yellow submarines and the big gatherings in the streets. Um, and so I realized then, what, I had been a travel writer. I mean, I'd been making travel documentaries since 2006. No, since 19, oh, 1996, like for 20 years. Um, and uh, I would never have thought of not traveling. You know, I've been writing travel books, but suddenly I realized um, I cannot, with the knowledge that we now have about the damage that every flight has, I wouldn't be able to look myself, look back at myself in 10 years time and know that I was continuing to encourage people to fly when I knew the damage that every flight was doing. So I definitely was thinking like, this is not a necessary time for everyone to give up flying. But me as a travel writer, it was vital that I stopped flying for travel and encouraging other people to, to go around the world. And I did say at that time that I would still travel if I had to for business, if there was really good reason. But I just thought the, the age of travel writing and promoting travel. Um, and I remember I got onto RTE at the time because I was doing a regular slot on the on some RTE morning show, the Sean O'Rourke show. And I said to them, look, I can't talk about travel, but I'm happy to talk about uh, train travel across Europe. And uh, and I was also doing, I did a regular slot for a Virgin Media show and for that show and for the, the um, Jay Fanning show on 2FM. And, um, you know, two out of the three said, that's fine. And one said no, and they just dropped me and said, no, you're either talking about flying or you're gone. And as you said, then everything has changed. The funny thing is, is that when I read that article, I remember going, gosh, I couldn't do that. But now a year later, I haven't flown out of the country. And, you know, I'm kind of using my memory banks of travel. And I presume it'd be the same with you. You know, you have so many good memories that, that you can rely on. You exactly, know? exactly. There, yeah, the minute the, the flights open up again, everyone is going to go everywhere. And then it'll be doubly hard for me to then stick by my commitment and stay at home. I mean, I don't see it in any way a a shortage or a hampering because I'm just so excited about exploring Europe and further afield by train. And it's funny because I actually did an article a few weeks ago and it was about that. It was about ethical travel. I was saying that kind of the trends are going to be ethical travel, sustainable travel and slow travel. And that is like trains. And, you know, when I've traveled myself, some of the best trips I've ever had are on trains. Oh, definitely. Oh, I love a train. I just love where one's mind goes to. And I love that slow pace. It's exactly like any great travel writer has said, you know, you will not see anything from a plane. Derva Murphy was such the great Irish travel writer, was such a proponent of, of cycling. 
until she, she said actually cycling at trains and then cycling. And then she said even cycling was too quick. So then she walked everywhere. But really, the slower we go, the more we see, the more we encounter and we feel and the more meetings we have. So like my memory is saying, places like India, if you're on the train, you meet other families and they share food with you and you end up talking. And you're, you're right, you don't do that on a plane. You know, you're, you're, you know, you really get to meet people, don't you? As over exactly. a longer period of time, usually. Yeah, no, it's quite true. So they say it's going to come back into fashion, sleeper trains in Europe. Exactly. So it's so exciting to see all the new sleeper trains that were being talked about and being brought online throughout Europe before COVID. I I love, you know, that other thing that you've been doing is the community tourism and a lovely thing to do. I was reading some of your articles, some of the places that you've been to, like there were some amazing trips, weren't they? Yeah, they were. So I had like, so for my first ever trip to Africa, trip anywhere in the world was to Africa in 1989. I was 19 and, um, you know, I was just wanted to explore the world. I went to Africa. It, it absolutely changed me, but I never went back there again. That was 89. I hadn't been back there until 2008. In 2008, the Irish Times launched the Go Travel magazine. It was the height of the boom and they were making so much money from advertising in their Irish Times Saturday supplement, the Saturday newspaper. They decided, they decided we will set up a unique magazine devoted to travel. And I started writing for it in their first week. Um, and I, the first place they sent me was to, to Africa, to, to Ghana, I think. Uh, yeah. And, um, no, to Zimbabwe, to Zambia, to Zambia. And, uh, I hadn't been back, as I said, for 20 years. And I thought, why had I done this? I have traveled in that intervening 20 years. I had been everywhere. I've been all over South America, all over Africa, or sorry, all over China, the Middle East, to Greenland, to the States. Um, but I had never been back to Africa. And the minute I landed, in uh, Zambia again, I fell head over heels in love with the place. And I decided, I made a commitment. This is the only place I want to return to. Once you, once Africa gets into your skin, nowhere else can compete. Um, And so I started over the next few years from 2008 on for about six, seven years, just going to a different place every year. And I mean, what is it? I never went to South, South Africa. I always realized that that just the politics of that would be too intense but what I found was that more and more places I went, it was either rich South Africans or English-based companies who were profiting from my tourism. So I decided, I wonder are there ways that you can go to Africa and yet support um, support the local community? And that was what opened my eyes to community tourism. And I decided from then on in, I would just go to Africa and I would just try and experience community tourism. And I found, so community tourism is obviously very simple. It's basically that the, it's a, you have a profit making business, but those profits aren't just sucked out by one corporate or capitalist entity and ideally don't leave the country, but go into the local community. And it's an idealistic concept, but it is actually very hard to realize in reality. And so, so many of the community tourism ventures that I visited, as you said, in Ghana, in, in Tanzania, in Mozambique, didn't really work out either someone would have um either took the money uh, you know and profited where the community didn't or the ngo some foreign ngo was too involved that when they left the whole thing fell apart or just the quality wasn't up there that i was feeling that i could really recommend it to people and then i happened to come across that one in ethiopia tesfa tours which i was there in about 2009 and it's it was probably, it is the, definitely the best holiday I've ever had in my life. And I wrote about it in 2009 and I wrote an article that I will never be able to write the first sentence of that article again. And I said in that article, I said, this is an article. I can promise you that on your deathbed, you will look back on this holiday as one of the highlights of your life. And I realized that it was totally over the top as a sentence, as in as a travel writer, it was far too gushing and lacked objectivity, but I wanted to get people's attention. So I realized this is an opportunity that people are never going to have again. It is absolutely safe because of course, that's the worry people have about Africa. It's very, very affordable but I think it was 24 euros a day. And it was to one of the most beautiful places in the world. So that was, I wrote that in 2009. Still today, I will get emails from people saying, I cut out that article and I'm now ready to go. Is Test for Tours still going? And they are, they're still in operation. They had a few teething problems about seven years ago, but um, it's, it's the holiday of a lifetime. And my last holiday was going to be, before I gave up flying, was to do their, ne- their new tour. So what Test for Tours do, they go and engage with the local remote community. It, uh, it, set, it set up actually an Englishman, Mark Chapman, was behind it. But he has, he has, you know, he, all the profits go to the local area. And um, 
he goes to a remote area and he asks the people, would they lead walking tours along the most beautiful areas of the escarpment or the high mountains in Ethiopia? And uh, then tourists, maybe about eight or 10 tourists go there. They have donkeys to carry their bags and they just walk from one rural village to another to a place that would not be safe because Ethiopia is still a strongly tribal society. So you you can't roam around unless you're, like in the same way as Ireland, you weren't allowed to roam around in tribal Ireland unless you were a poet. In the same way, you can't go go around these really um, pure remote places in Ethiopia without without going with the local people. And oh my God, the landscape is stunning. So yeah, for me, that was one of, it was a revelation. Yeah, it's funny. I read that article and I have to say that opening line did really caught my attention. I was like, gosh, yeah, I have to go there. It sounds just spectacular. And is it the people are lovely as well? I've heard about the Ethiopians that they're very uh, open. They're and, so uh, beautiful people. They're so unique. So we always think of Africa, we think of colonized people, even if we never think about that logically, but we think of people who have been victims of colonial oppression, people who have a complex relationship with white people, people who have been enslaved and beaten and trodden down. And that is just not the case with Ethiopia. On your first day in Addis Ababa, you see an entirely different Africa. And you see what Africa could have been had the British and the Dutch colonists never arrived. Because the Ethiopians have no sense of um, lack of self-esteem or no sense of colonial oppression or no sense of bitterness against white people. They have for thousands of years been an incredibly sophisticated, beautiful culture. And they've kept that alive. It's, it is Oh, it's an, an inspiration and a total mind meld to, 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 to experience it. And they're quite regal, aren't they? The people, they're very, uh, they're very proud and they're very, yeah, as you say, of their country. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of Africa is, so much of Africa still has that, that, that royal element, that pride. Um, I mean, the others have just unfortunately suffered, but they still display it because they were cultured and sophisticated way before we in Ireland or in Western Europe ever had any type of civilization. And, you know, you mentioned there about the colonialism and I, I read a couple of articles that you did about the Congo, you know, so you were kind of recommending there. But then, am I right in saying that? Or was it Uganda exactly. and sort of grappling with the idea of the danger, you know? Hilarious. Yeah, I think my first article about, um, I organized in 2008, just when I'd started my column in the Irish Times, I, I put out a call for, would anyone go on a bus holiday with me to the Congo? Because again, if, if I realized after being everywhere in the world that Africa was the place that was closest to my heart, then of all places in Africa, it is the Congo. And I suppose it's because I had this life-changing experience in the Congo or what was then Zaire in 89 and 1990. And it just gave me an entirely new perspective on the world, my experience in Africa overall, but particularly in the Congo. And I just thought, I want to see, like, the Congo is a very difficult place to travel in. It always has been, and it still is. Like, so it is the the epitome of deepest, darkest Africa. Um, so when, you know, Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad book is set there uh in a, and even even the uh, the even um apocalypse now the movie you know mostly said the, the, the idea that it's in vietnam exactly. but it's inspired by conrad's heart of darkness the congo is the most remote place the most densely jungle place the most has the fewest roads and it, it saddens me the only thing that people know about it from recent years well one is um stanley and um Dr. Livingstone and Stanley. So when mm. Dr. Livingstone, the, the British sort of um, explorer and slightly colonial explorer, mm. and then the news, the journalist um, from the Telegraph, in, this is in the, in the 19th century, Stanley came looking for him. And so we heard about how wild and savage and uncivilized the, the people of Central Africa were at the time. And then in more recent years, there was a book by Tim Butcher called Blood um, River, Blood River, Blood River. And um, again, about Congo, and again, showing it as this wild, unsavage place, which is horrible. So the English have always liked to show these places as being sort of uncivilized, which is the exact opposite. And just to say, Tim Butcher was also a Telegraph news writer 100 years after Stanley. They love this idea of talking about the savage, you know, dark Africans rather than reveling in the, in the culture. But anyway, 
the Congo, or Zaire as it was, was under my skin. And what's fascinating is particularly for Irish people, because it was the first ever place we went on a UN mission in the 60s, we have this affinity with it. So your travels, a place that kind of jumped out, Ladakh, is it its own little country? Yeah, so Ladakh is an, in, an autonomous region within India. Am I certain of that? Yes, it is. So it borders, as you say, Nepal and Tibet. And in fact, it's closest of all, of all to Tibet. It is, um, it's, it's, um, and somehow China never got their hands on it. So, and it, and luckily India give it, give it a good deal of freedom, but it is in the high Himalayas. It's in a very deeply Buddhist place, a deeply remote place. You get to it by going through the Shimla Valley. And for much of the year, when I was there, even for much of the year, it was, um, it was cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, the roads were not passable. I think since I've been there, the roads now are passable in winter. Um, but it's it's an arduous journey. And so any of those places, as you say, in the, the high art places in Nepal and Tibet and Ladakh, because of the altitude and because of the isolation and because of the potency and the purity of the Tibetan culture, these are places apart. And it looks just like the Tibetan altiplano, this steep, this desert, uh, stone desert steep, because it's a desert because, you know, it's too high for things to grow there. Um uh, most things. There's a bit of eucalyptus. But the culture and the people, in the same way the people Lador, Nepalese and Tibetan people, the Ladakhi are the same type of people. So it is a gorgeous place. And the reason I went there was, I think in about the year 2001, my brother and I made a TV series for TG Car, um, for the, the Irish Language Channel, about connecting, finding Irish craftspeople and then bringing them to the places in the world where their crafts were being still being done to see could the craftspeople from Ireland communicate with the craftspeople abroad through craft alone. So we brought Podrick Deneen, a curragh maker, or the traditional, you know, boat of the West of Ireland. We brought him... Um, up to um, to Greenland to see was there any connection between the boats he made and the people of um, the Inuit people of Greenland, and then we bought, brought Joe Hogan, the great a great basket maker, traditional basket maker from the west of Ireland, from Mayo. Um, we brought him to uh, from Lucknafui on the Mayo Galway border. We brought him to Ladakh to meet a man called Punsok Dorje, a local Buddhist basket maker, to see could they communicate. And the minute Punsok met Joe, they we they had no shared language, but Punsok could see that Joe Joe brought a basket with him from Ireland. And so Punsok saw this basket and he was intrigued by the basket and he wanted to know how the basket was made. And then he he took Joe by the hand and he brought him down to the river to where he collects his willow. And together they cut willow together. And Punsok had a, had a little sickle, but um, Joe jo, jo, jo had a secateurs. And Punsok was intrigued by the secateurs for cutting, the, for cutting the, the willow rods. And together they cut the rods and brought him back and sat down on the vast desert, rocky steep with the high Himalayas, snow-clad Himalayas surrounding him in the background. And they made a basket together. So just that entrance to a culture for me through its crafts was really profound. And so Ladakh will stay with me for that reason. And it's amazing, this connection between all these different cultures. You know, I read something else you said about, you know, about the Arabic and Irish language. You know, the similarities. Is that the word for port? I always wonder where Irish comes from. So we wouldn't think that the Irish language um, would have roots around the world. It has been spoken on this island, what, for two, two and a half, maybe 3,000 years. And so it's an absolutely local, rooted language. But yet when you go into it, you see all of these loan words from a huge amount of loan words and concepts from from uh, that are also in Hindu, that are from Sanskrit and from Indian culture. But as you say, also you find some words, not as many, but some words from from Arabic culture, like, as you said, Kala. So Kala is the Irish for um, for harbour, C-A-L-A-D-H. But it's the Arabic is Hala, Hala, K-H-A-L-A. And then Squab is the Irish for a brush in Irish. But then in, in Malta, it's Squab, uh, Squba. And then Winning is the Irish for confidence or for trust in Irish. And Winina, Winna is the same in Arabic. And the great example is Skian. Skian is the Irish of knife. And you go to any country in the Arabic world and you say Sikian or Skina, Skina, and they will know it's a knife too. So why is that? Why would we have the same language as Arabic? And we sort of know, particularly like you and me as travelers, people have traveled all of, since the beginning of time, you know? So we know that 
I mean, the mythology tell us that the Irish people came from Spain, and we know that the Arabic people have been in Spain a long time. But even that, we know we have found elements of North African culture um, in our archaeology from 2,000 years ago. So we know that the, the Berber people of North Africa were trading and were sailing up the coast of Atlantic. So we would have been swapping words. And what's lovely is the more you travel, the more you realize that actually everything and everybody is connected. And we think we come from one nation, but in fact, all we are just one tribal people who have slowly been migrating around the world and constantly nomadic. If somebody loves travel, you're right, generally very understanding of other cultures because they do see that. They do see the similarities between people and cultures and how similar we are, especially with music as well. I mean, the Middle Eastern music, I've always taught this could be traditional Irish music. It was just so similar. It's quite oh, amazing. It really is. Yeah, we are one world. We are one world. And again, like I didn't understand that until that first, my ever first trip when I was 19 and I set off. I was so, I felt so confined and so constricted in Ireland in the 1980s. And so I just, I got on the back of an ex-army truck that was going to Africa. Um, and the minute I arrived in Morocco, you know, we drove through drove to England and drove to France and drove to Spain in the heart of the winter, November, um, the in yeah, uh, the year that Thatcher was just being thrown out of office. And I arrived in Chefchaouen in, in northern Morocco, and suddenly I saw people, Berber people, dressed in jalubas and traditional homespun woolen cloaks and gears. And I realized these are the same clothes that I saw in my childhood books of the New Testament. And I had no idea that people were still living as they did a thousand to two thousand years ago, as we did in the Middle Ages. I didn't realize that, in fact, probably the majority of the world were still living in simple subsistence, local based lives in, in 89. And it was a revelation to me. And it suddenly made more sense to me than this sort of urban and suburban life that most of us in Ireland have only lived for a generation or maximum two generations. Exactly. And actually, that was something I noticed. I was in Tanzania for my honeymoon. We went, you know, we went to Kilimanjaro and went, to, you know, Arusha, I think it is the town beside it. And we hadn't booked anything, you know, to get a guide and stuff. So I met a guy and we went off looking to get gear and things. And he brought me to a little makeshift bar. And, and then when I was in there with him, I was going, gosh, I wonder, am I being a bit innocent? But I felt some completely comfortable. I felt as if I was in the West of Ireland, you know, this little makeshift bar. I was the only white guy there, but I was, I felt completely comfortable. I have to say. We, the thing is that, you know, people are frightened of Africa because there's been hundreds of years of stories about how dangerous and bad Africa is. And to my shame, like I still, every time I, I you know, probably the last time I was in Africa was probably three years ago, but every time I'd go there, I would still get my affairs in order. I would still have this sense of, okay, potential danger. And I would, you know, have my money belt and I would protect myself and all of this. And then I'd go to Africa and I'd arrive there normally late at night um, and or whatever. But then I would arrive in the airport and I would get a local, a local shared minibus from the airport. And I'd throw my bag into the back of the minibus and I would be nervous and constantly watching out and protecting my wallet. And then by the end of that trip, either someone would have said, would have said, oh, no, you're not paying. We've already paid for you. Or someone would have looked after my bag or someone would have said, here's some present for you. Here's some fruit for you. And every time I realized, oh, my God, of course, I'm back in the womb of Mother Africa. Nothing will harm me here. As long as I trust these people, these people absolutely trust me. But we have so many hang ups about them. And to be fair, my reason is because that first trip that I did in Africa, and I wrote about it in a book called Truck Fever. It was a difficult trip. You know, we sort of bad things happened to us only because of our own stupidity. And we went without food and water for many days. I went without food for about eight or nine days, went without water for a few days. I got illnesses that, you know, were incurable at the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I knew that there was a different side of Africa, but that was only because I was ignorant and doing stupid things there at the time. And it didn't put you off it, obviously. <laughs> that was your first trip. So you got all the bad stuff out of the way on your first trip. <laughs> I mean, I realised it was my own fault. This was my first trip and I was 19 and it was 20 people on the back of an ex-army truck. And so I realised, as you said earlier, that tourists tend to, to like, travellers tend to like other cultures. What I realised about the people on the back of my truck was that none of them had any interest in Africa or the local people. So we weren't a nice bunch of people. We were 20 people paying, we had paid a 1,000 euros to a company in, in Wales to bring us across. And so I realised that the people I was with 
they were sort of petrified of Africa and petrified of each other, and they were constantly fighting. So it wasn't a nice um, experience in that in that regard. But the most exciting thing happened three months into the trip. Our driver, a woman um, named Susie, I'd call her, knew adored Africa and she'd been through the continent many times before and she wanted us to love the animals and the wildlife and the scenery but most of the people were still infighting after three months in the truck but what she wanted us to do when we arrived in Zaire or in the Congo she wanted us to take the great river journey one of the great river journeys in the world from Kinshasa down to Kisangani on these floating metal markets that go up and down the river pulled by a tugboat and um, she told us that she was going to leave us there and that she was going to drive through the jungle for three days and she would meet us in Kisangani. Kisangani used to be called Stanleyville. And we were going, the boat was going from Leopoldville to Stanleyville. Um, and she was going to meet us there. And so we said goodbye and we just left the truck with just enough money for the few days on the boat. Um, and uh, we all went to sleep that night. But we did a stupid thing. That night, the first night ever without Susie telling us what to do. We went and got cannabis. We went and got drugs, which, you know, so many tourist people everywhere in the world have seen this happen. People either take too much drink or too much drug, it's, drugs and then get into trouble. So we did that. We did. We bought a huge big bag of, of cannabis, got very stoned, got very high, and everything we owned was robbed from us. Every single thing we had was stolen. And what I didn't realize, again, you uh, any good Africa hand would, you're in a military dictatorship. So it's the military who have stolen everything from you. Nothing happens in a military dictatorship without the military controlling it. That's just part of the world. The same way. Yeah. Anyway. And um, we, uh, so we went, I was the only one with any French. No one else had French. And, you know, 70% of the countries we were going through were French speaking, and particularly the Congo. So we spent, we went next morning to try and get a, the boat um, despite we had everything robbed and realized there was no boat coming and there wouldn't be a boat. There was a dry season that come early, so there couldn't be a boat coming. And also this is the last years of Mobutu, the dictator's regime. So there was no money in the country. Um, so anyway, we realized that we had no boat, no, um, no, no truck, no, sorry, no petrol, no water. And there was going to be no other truck, um, sort of NGO or charity truck following us because the is the uh, Iran Iraq war or the Desert Storm had just um, sorry the Iraq war had just started so every border around us had closed so basically we were trapped there without passports without money and that's how things got tricky but it also made me come alive and realize how rich and amazing the world is so that's the story that I tell in Truck Fever in that in that book I wrote. Okay. Your other book that you about going through the Americas. So did, you went from South America up to Seattle. Is that right? Uh, no. So that was, that, I mean, the book is, yeah, the book is sort of based on, a, it is, sorry, it's exactly what you're saying. It's exactly right. <laughs> sorry. Um, so yeah, Angel of Rabies was, it's a tales of a few different journeys and trips I did through South America. And my first, so I did that trip to Africa and then I finished my degree, my time in college. I did two years in, in university in Dublin. And then the minute I left without waiting for my degree or diploma or anything, I went straight off to South America and I ran an organic farm there on the Ecuadorian Peruvian border. Uh, I first went to Colombia and had difficulties there. And then I went to um, Ecuador and Peru and I stayed there on and off for about two years. I mean, I went back to Ireland at one stage in between because there was a war. The era, my my farm was on the border between Ecuador and Peru. And unfortunately, both countries went to war with each other. That was about 1994 and they started bombing each other. So I had to flee. But eventually I ended up in Vancouver, um, Seattle, and then across into Vancouver. And I stayed there for about a year with people that I knew from Ecuador. And there what they were doing, it was in a remote valley in the Kootenai Mountains near Nelson, which is in British Columbia. And it was legal at the time to grow cannabis there. or So they were growing organic cannabis for the Californian market. It was obviously illegal in America, but it was legal in British Columbia. So they were able to grow this cannabis. And then they would bring a lot of it down to AIDS centers in San Francisco and um, LA. And they would give it for free to AIDS patients in the early 90s. So I was there. I wasn't involved with the cannabis. I was just looking after their children for them. And growing vegetables again. So that, that book, Angels and Rabies, tells of some of the crazy things that happened to me in South oh, America. What? Sorry, it ha- some of the oh, things that happened to me. What did you study in college? In college, I studied uh, history and Irish. I did German in the first year. 
So my family were these Republican revolutionaries. And so it was important for them that I spoke different languages. And I'm so lucky. So I had French, you know, from when I was about four or five, they would teach me French. And then they taught, then they sent me to Goethe Institute. So I had German. And then the minute I realized that I wanted to travel more, I started learning Spanish. So, um, it just really helped that when I was traveling places, you were, I was always able to make myself known with either the German, the French, the Spanish. And then, then after 96, when I started making travel documentaries for TG Cahar, then I learned Arabic to make a, a series about the Middle East. And I learned um, Mandarin uh, for a series about China. In the end, I didn't need the Arabic because everyone spoke English there. And I had good Arabic, well, no, basic, sorry, Mandarin when I was in China. But alas, that was, that was in the year 2000. And I've forgotten every word of it since. I'd love to relearn it, though. So how many languages then do you, you can speak about? About eight, is it? Or six or seven? That's amazing, isn't it? Exactly. I had Irish before I had English. Then I had Irish, then English, then French and that's came how along. You know, and, that, and that's how you know the, the, the similarities between them all. Exactly. Yeah, that's sort of, and you know, the more languages you have, the the easier it is to get others. But it embarrasses me that I've forgotten all my Chinese. I would love, the one place that I really feel, I wouldn't, I feel, I feel an onus to go and spend a year in China. I know it'd be difficult, but I think China is the future of the world, one way or the other. And when, when my brother and I made our six-part series in China in the year 2000 or 2001, we tended to go to a lot of the minority places because the places where minority cultures were in Yunnan province and the Mosu and the Nahu and the Nahi, and then in Xinjiang province too, the Uyghurs that unfortunately everyone hears about now because so many of them are in um, internment camps. But I just, the Han Chinese, the main, the main culture, um, or tribe in China, the Han is, um, so, so ubiquitous and so uniform throughout the world, throughout, sorry, China, that one really yearns to see other elements of character and culture when you're there. So I was always hunting out. Eventually we went to Taiwan too, and we got to meet some of the great, uh, indigenous tri, tri, um, tribal people in Taiwan as well. But I would like to return there. Is China a bit like, is it like Europe as in, is there that much of a difference between these different areas? Oh, absolutely. Like the cultures. So Yunnan province is the province where most of, where the majority of the indigenous people have survived. So there would have been native tribes with different languages and different cultures in every single part of China. But then the emperor's system was so strong. And for the last like few thousand years, it has been a Han emperor. So it was in everyone's interest to take on that culture and to forget their own. But Yunnan province in, um, in the west of the country, is uh it is in the west yeah in the west of the country bordering tibet in some bit parts of it um and bordering uh vietnam isn't it yeah um is it yeah so um but yeah it, it, first in terms of biodiversity it is so rich it is this gorgeous green mountainous area and you know we often hear of the how mao would have wiped out the he would have got all the school children to kill every insect and every bird long ago and to to have masses of um grain growing everywhere and industrial factories pumping out to increase the wealth none of that happened in yunnan it remained it's basically like the west of ireland it remained much of it remained rural and beautiful and um, idyllic. And so the native tribes thrived there because the Han Chinese couldn't bring in their big industry. Um, and so Buddhism is there. And most of the cultures that interested me were the matriarchal ones, like like the Mosu and the Nahi. And these are cultures where all power is within, is with the women. So a woman doesn't marry a man because a woman would then be in bondage to him. She lives all her life at home and her brothers do all her bidding. Her brothers work the farm, her brothers build a house, her brothers look after everything. And then she has, she creates a, a flower, what's the word, a flower chamber within the house. And that is her matriarchal bed. And she is able to choose any man in the community and invite him, basically order him to come and spend some nights with her. And he will then be her partner for as long as she wants him to be. But there's one rule. He can sleep in the matriarchal chamber of her, uh, but as long as he is back in his own mother's house next morning, because obviously he is the worker of his sister and of his mother. 
So he needs to be there. And it's, it is this idyllic culture, like the music and the stories and the beautiful clothes they wear and how in tune to nature they are. You see the absolute biodiversity where everyone in China, you will see how nature has been destroyed, has been controlled by man, how there's all of the, the range of flora and fauna has disappeared. It is the opposite in Yunnan because the women have kept alive and the richness of their music and their books and their alphabet. Oh, it's, it's a heaven. It, it kind of reminds me like a queen bee. It's kind of, you know, like, so is the guy, does he come in, does he involved with the fordering of the kid? I wonder. No, no, her, the brothers are, he said the, the child will see his, uh, her, his uncles as his father, as his father. Um, I mean, you know, mostly because they're the people he is interacting with every day. And the reason that they do this is because they believe in absolute love and they believe in freedom. And they think the only way you can have a person can follow their love, follow their heart, but still protect the children is you need a stable home. So in the past, we thought the stable home was a husband owning a woman. That worked out for men very well. It didn't work out for women. Um, so the opposite, they thought, okay, let's give the power <laughs> to women, but we need a stable home for the children to be reared in one place rather than them traveling and seeing different people. So it was then understood, okay, they will be um, in the home of their their mother and their grandmother and then their, their, their uncles. And they build the houses in a fascinating way. They build it in the shape of like medieval courtyards, four-sided courtyards out of wood. Often the houses are painted purple and the women wear the most beautiful flowing robes of purple. And so the four-sided courtyard and each maybe... Each wing of the family will have their own side. So the mother, the grandmother will have her own wing and then the brothers will have their wing and then the, the, the matriarch, the daughter of the mother, will have her own wing. Are all the courtyards kind of facing inwards? Is it exactly. Kind of the wall exactly. and the outer? Yeah, that's it. There's an amazing documentary done about it by Channel 4. And if I could read, if I could remember, I don't know. But unfortunately, there's been quite a few books and documentaries that only sort of focus on the more... Um, sort of um, sexual aspect of it. They're just about the promiscuity of the women, which isn't the issue at all. It's not about that. It's about women wanting to be freedom, to be free, to have true love, but also to protect their children. So um, China is challenging, but it is the future of the world. So we sort of have an onus to get to know it. How does it compare then to, from a challenging point of view to India? Because I've been to India and I found that I loved it, but it, I call it, it was like a bit of work. India is such an assault on all of the senses, on, you know, the sight, the smell, the sounds, the soul, the spirit. Um, it is definitely an assault. It is challenging at every time. Um, I would say, though, that in terms India, it's easier to travel in India than it is in Africa. In Africa, one needs to give every moment of every day trying to work out how you're going to get from one place to the other. It is exhausting traveling in Africa, but so worthwhile. But meanwhile, China is different again. China is not in any way an assault. You know, it is absolutely clean. It's organized. It's relatively efficient. It's just finding being in a place where every question you ask someone you can ask someone a question a thousand kilometers away from each other and they will answer with the exact same answer. There, It's the lack of spontaneity, the lack of seemingly independence or, or um, autonomous thinking that can be sort of um, that can be soul crushing. And one realizes, you know, you arrive in Beijing and are excited, but then you go to every other city and you just see the same things repeated. In some way, it is awesome the way that there can be one dictate given out about what a park will look like or what a building will look like or what a hotel will look like or what a banquet will look like. And then it is spread throughout this entire vast country, the exact same things. I mean, there are tight, slight regional differences in food and things, but mostly um, you are seeing the same. It is like... It's, it's like what America is becoming now. You know, everything is the same, the same everywhere you go. And what made the place unique is being wiped out. And so after a while, you yearn for freedom of expression, for spontaneity. And so you you go to the, the indigenous places where the cultural, the tribal people have still been allowed to remain free. Now, I say this, but it should be made clear that I was in China 20 years ago now, 2000, 2001 maybe, and I haven't been back since. So 20 years is a long time. And obviously there is now so much more um, 
self-expression, I suppose, and possibly, you wouldn't go so far as to say freedom, but awareness of um, the idea of having one's own opinion and, and being self-expressed. So I am out of touch with China. Okay, and just one piece I want to ask you about was, that, I know it's a bit general now, we're kind of zipping through the world, but I was just interested about the Middle East. Is there anywhere there, like where it jumps out? That's an area I don't really know and I'd love to go to. And yeah. where would you recommend? Again, I feel that um, there is an onus on us to go to the Middle East, but it's a total pleasure to go there too. It is just a phenomenal experience. I would have recommended Syria, but unfortunately one can't go there. Like Syria is the absolute highlight of the Middle East, or at least it was the wonderful market in Aleppo, the, the old crusader capitals, um, but all of that is gone um, for the moment. And um Last no, not not last year. Last year I took a train. Last January, just before I gave up flying, I took a train down to the Costa del Sol just to because I all my life I've gone somewhere warm in winter. So I decided if I wasn't going to fly, I'd take the train down to Costa del Sol. But um, the year before, I spent the winter in um, half of it in Lebanon, Lebanon, and the other half in Istanbul. And both places, I would absolutely wholeheartedly recommend. I, I mean, Istanbul doesn't need to be sold to anyone. Everyone knows how exotic and beautiful and how safe it is. You know, one foot in Europe, one foot in the Middle East. It is um, utterly captivating. But Lebanon, Beirut in particular, people think that's dangerous because we hear about it. We used to hear about it in the 1980s in the news with regard to um, to such terrible civil war. And still we hear about it with bombings the odd time. Um, and obviously the, the terrible explosion, the port last year. Um, but it is wonderful. There's some tragic things about Lebanon and Beirut. One is that you can't, I mean, they have the most beautiful Mediterranean beaches in the world, but they've polluted them so much you can't swim in them. Um, but the culture, this mix, and a lot of the older people still speak French. So you still have this Europe, it's a very European city, um, Beirut is, but, um, but still so rooted to the Arabic world. And what's just really interesting is going into coffee shops and going into bars and hearing what people are saying. Because we, we just come across it on the on CNN, you know, and the American news um, about how the things are in the Middle East. But to hear, people are educated in Lebanon and most of them will speak English. Um, you know, I mean, most of the people you'd meet in a cafe or the people who want to talk to you will speak English. And just to be able to ask them what their view is of Europe and the Middle East. And they are so curious about what you think of their country. So all of the Middle East is friendly and worth going to. Um, but I think as a first step, well, if you really are nervous, go to Istanbul, but otherwise go straight to Lebanon um, and you will not regret it. Another place on my list is Jerusalem. I, I, I love that whole, um, I've read a few books about the Crusades and stuff. And as you say, about Syria, and I just would love to go there. I have to say, have you been to Jerusalem or Israel? That's a, would you? I did. So, yeah, whereas in the year 1999, just when the Second Intifada was there, we, I was making a, I made a, a TV series called, for T.G. Kahar, called Manachan Eshachran Sylvan Irher, and an English version called Global Nomad. Um, and we did a six-part series, one on one on Turkey, one on Syria, one on Lebanon, one on Israel, one on Egypt, and one on Jordan. And um, have I been back? Yeah, I have been back to Israel since. Again, Israel breaks one's heart, you know, one's heart, just to see the Israeli troops so heavy on the streets there and uh, their presence, and to see how the Palestinians, how life is so difficult for them. So it is not... Um, it's not an easy place to travel to. The, the fact the military presence is so strong. And, you know, my the book I said, the book was called Angels and Rabies, the book about South America. A lot of that is spent, it's about my time living in this place in on the Ecuador-Peruvian border, which a lot of Israeli, a lot, Ecuadorian Peru, yeah, a lot of Israelis used to come to it. And it was known because there was a particular drug there, the San Pedro cactus, a uh, mescaline-induced cactus. And the Israelis, straight after their four years of conscription, or three, or sometimes up to five years if they, were, if they went on to, to lead a platoon, um, they would come straight to this little beautiful town called Vilcabamba, a valley of longevity up in the Andes. And um, they would take this cactus. And so... I would to try and just deal with to try and cleanse themselves from the awful, awful oppressive things they had done. And I would I had such compassion for the Israelis then because I would just see these young boys and young girls 
who were like went into the army at 17 because their uncles and their grandparents and their parents and the whole country said, this is your moral duty as an Israeli. And then they found themselves setting light to Palestinian olive plantations or pointing guns at young Palestinian um, children going to school or just destroying houses um, of, of Palestinian people and defending settlers, Israeli settlers who were just occupying countries that illegally they had no right to. Um, so I have... I have real, yeah, I have real sympathy for both sides in there. But it, by dint of that, it's a hard place to travel in. So, just one last thing, I just wanted to ask you about your book, um, thirty-two words for field. I, another article, I, I love your articles, I have to say, and um, I read a few weeks ago, and I really enjoyed it. You were talking about all the different words for on the seashore. Yeah, I mean the beautiful thing about ancient languages. Um, of which Irish is one or, you know, Sanskrit is one or Hebrew, is that they are so redolent with how humans would have lived in a certain place and experienced the nature, the landscape, the weather and patterns. And so, you know, one can choose any old language. And I have in the last few years, as you say, have been focusing on the Irish language. And I wrote this that first book, 32 Words for Fields, which just explores the hidden insights that the Irish language has and gives us into our culture, into the landscape, into our history, and particularly into the psyche of the human mind, and most importantly, into the other world. Because, you know, again, almost all traditional societies believed in a spirit world. They believed in this sense of animism, that there was a God animating all nature, all things, all life forms. And that was just a, a key part of Irish language as well. But we tend to forget it, particularly because when Christianity arrived in Ireland in the fifth century, a lot of that spiritual belief and a lot about that connection to nature and worshipping nature was was officially cut out. Luckily, it stayed alive among the people and is still redolent in the, in the language. So that book, yeah, that came out in September, 32 Words of Fields is looking at that. But then meanwhile, as the book was coming out, I spent all of last year, or whenever I was in lockdown and COVID, going around the... Atlantic coastline of Ireland, around Galway, around Mayo, around Donegal, and rooting, reaching out and asking the community for the for the for the fisherman, the fisherman who would have the most knowledge of lore and words and information in the past. And I would go to one. I went to Mickey Whiting and Macharorty and Donegal and Pat Murphy and Mayo and um, Cyril O'Flaherty on the Iron Islands. And I would ask them for the old words for the area. And as you said, they painted this picture that made me see the coastline and the fishing traditions that have been going on for thousands of years in these area areas in an entirely new way. And what I'm keen now, I call that project Guelga, no, Sea Tamagotchi. And I have um I have a book. I brought out a little book since then, a little handmade book that was made in the in a in a in a traditional publishing house on a on in an old cottage on top of a cliff in Ackle Island in the west of Ireland and they made this little book handmade book of 40 of the words called called Sea Tamagotchi and it's Tamagotchi do you remember was a little digital toy in the 1990s that you had to keep alive you had to press buttons and nourish it and nurture it <laughs> and so I see Tamagotchi was like I was giving out these words and I wanted people to nourish and to nurture them but what I would love to do now is this project could be done anywhere in the world. Anybody who's been to a coastal area, we know that there's fishermen there living their traditional life and with their own unique perspective. And again, it just happens. Travelers tend to be, we, we gravitate towards the coast. So we often meet fishermen who'll bring us out for a day or sell us a fish or, or tell us a story. So really the project I did in Ireland could be made absolutely universal. And my first job, I suppose, because of the name, see Tamagotchi, would be to bring it to Japan and to meet the the local traditional fishermen there who would have very different words, words for tidal waves and words for different for all of the different seaweeds they've been collecting for so long. Um, like there was a, a great there's a word in that collection called Shlauch. Shlauch is the word where the Irish word for nari, for nari, the um, a type of seaweed. And the great expert in Ireland on, on seaweed is a woman called Prani Ratican. And she was invited to British Columbia, to the west coast of Canada, to meet with the Haida Indians, local sea marine Indians there, and to talk to them about their culture and their seaweed. And she did the same about hers. And they brought her down along the coastline of the Pacific coast in Canada. And they showed her seaweed and they pointed out one seaweed. And they said, this seaweed is called Shlabok. And she said, 
No, it can't be called Shlabach. That's what we call Shlabach. It's the same. It can't, we call that Shlabach. You can't call it Shlabach. And she said, yeah, yeah. They said, we called the Haida Indian, or I think it was the Haida, some Native American tribe there, said that uh, this is the Shlabach. So I don't know how that happened. How the hell do we have the same word for um, for a seaweed as they? I mean, there's a whole lot of migration theory that people around, went around the world following the kelp migration, going along, collecting kelp in different places. But I don't know. But there are so many mysteries when one travels the world and each trip just unearths new ones and makes one want to roam further. Like that article, I was reading it over and that word stapog. And then I, I saw there was like a Slovenian woman and it made it even better. <laughs> it was just, and do you know what it reminded me of? It, it, it's funny when you read an article and you, you have something in your head and you don't even know it. Like a, a phrase that I, I, I spent um, two, two, in this, two summers in this year, not summers, two Junes in this year in Irish college. And I have such a close connection with their... And the Banantios used to go, Ahanin Kiro, Kiro Gela. And now I always say that to my kids. And it's funny because if I said, you know, a pot kettle or takes one to no one, they, they sound very harsh. Yeah. But Ahanin Kiro, Kiro Gela just it seems to sum it up perfectly and in a gentle way. It's so true. It's so beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's an international concept. The concept of proverbs, beautifully wrought concepts. You'll find them in Rumi. You'll find them in Japanese. You'll find them everywhere. Yeah, we are all universal. So listen, I really appreciate your time. Um, actually, I have one last question, and it is, if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths, where is your happy place and why? Hmm. I mean, had you asked me that question a decade ago, it probably would have been this Vilcabamba, that valley of longevity in Ecuador that I always return to go to, to that I always yearn to return to. But nowadays... It is this piece of land that I have here in the Midlands in Westmead, these 10 acres that whatever, 20 years ago, I planted maybe about nine or 12,000 oak trees and they've grown into sort of a pretty dense forest. And then all around me, I have my vegetables, I have my hens, I have my turkeys, I have my bees. I have the lake that I swim in every single day in winter, Loch Lane, just two fields away from me. And this is paradise. This is the reason that I'm okay never flying again. I'm happy here. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergal.